Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Jonathan Brook is on the podcast today. I have always really liked Jonathan Brook. Her songs are the best. They're sharp, joyful, and very wise, I would say. She's definitely one of those writers that like basically knows what to do uh, all the time, which is like the basis for why we love pop music. Anyways, I'll talk a little bit about what we get into, but first, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is brought to you in part by Winterbirds. Their new album, Shaker Songs, takes 18th and 19th century sacred texts from American shakers and puts it to all new progressive bluegrass compositions, exploring the poetry of this unique community. You can find Shaker Songs by Winterbirds on Bandcamp. Basic Folk is brought to you by motivational life coach Janet Forrest, who believes it's never too late to ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mention Basic Folk and you'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching when you visit JanetForrest.com to get started. I also want to let you know that we're running a giveaway on Instagram right now. If you find me on Instagram, CindyHouse underscore is where you can find my profile, giving away a copy of Anna Tivill's new vinyl record, The Question. Details and everything are up on my Instagram, so check it out. All right, uh, Jonathan Brook, or as I like to call her, JB. Uh, in this podcast, like this conversation is really special. It gets uh, very, uh, very real at times. She gives details about her upbringing in a Christian science household. She even went to Christian Science Summer Camp and tells us a little bit about that. Um, she talks about where she stands now with her religion and speak of her journey and taking care of her mother who had dementia. But it seems like she was like a hysterical woman who, uh, you know, during one of the saddest times in Jonathan's life when her mother was passing away, they were like laughing all the time. Um, and Jonathan was inspired to create a one-woman musical out of that experience called My Mother Has Four Noses, which we also talk about. Uh, we talk about Woody Guthrie. Um, she has an album that is entirely all songs written by Woody Guthrie. And of course, we talk about her incredible duo, the story that she had with Jennifer Kimball in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, we talk about a lot in this episode. I hope that we get to actually have another conversation with Jonathan at some point because we like towards the end of we've been talking for like 45 minutes and towards the end of the conversation, we just like hit a new topic that um, that we could have just kept going for another 45 minutes. But Jonathan has a new EP. It's coming out April 19th. So whenever you're listening to this, it's called Imposter. Imposter. 
Uh, And we're going to listen to the lead single on the EP called Fire. And then we'll get to our conversation with Jonathan Brooke on Basic Folk. I've always been a pleaser because it's easier to get along. Carry on, sing a damn song before I tell you how I feel. This is how I feel when I tell you that it's real because I'm hot now. You know how. I will beg, borrow, and steal. This heat is gonna save me. Fever misbehave me. Watch it spike. You're gonna like it. Cause I'm in the ring and I'm a knockout. So watch out. Bring, bring it. Um, thanks for doing this, Jonathan Brooke. My pleasure. Thank you. Um, so it's kind of weird to so like right now I'm sitting at um, a radio station that I used to work at in college where I first discovered your music and now I work here so it's like come full circle Um, that's kind of cool yeah I remember that uh, I was like very unfamiliar with your music as like a young teen and I had um, a co-host on the show and she was like very aggressive about your music and we (laughs) we would play 10 cent wings and she would sing the whole song and it was is very formidable. Oh, I love aggressive fans. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, let's uh, let's talk about your early family life. It's a, if that's all right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. You grew up in Cambridge. Is that true? Well, yeah, a little bit Weston, then Boston. Yeah, we moved into the city when I was about twelve because I was a hardcore ballerina, and Mom got tired of driving me every single day into the city for ballet class. So where were you studying ballet? <laughs> the Cambridge School of Ballet in uh, Central Square. And what got you interested in dance? When I was six, we were living in London, and we were there for like two and a half years, and we had this option. I don't think, actually, we maybe didn't have the option. We were, you know, I was at a, a school for girls, Francis Holland School for Girls in Sloane Square in London, and we all took ballet at the Royal Academy of Dance and I just fell for it. I was smitten. I was just like this thing that inspired me and consumed me. Like immediately? Immediately. I was hardcore. What were you, what was your family doing in England? My dad was a journalist. He was a newspaper man. So he was, um, the American editor for the Christian science monitor. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And so what was your family like growing up? Were you the only child? I am the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. And what was, was it the like? baby. What was it like growing up with, uh, with your parents? What kind of parents were they like? They were great parents. I really, especially being older, a little older now, imagining like, parenting artsy fartsy kids and like worrying about like how will they make their way in the world how how will they make a living how will they keep a roof over their heads they were they just seem completely comfortable with whatever any of us would choose like we're all teacher writer artsy you know goofballs and somehow we're fine and they supported us in this really trusting way I want to talk about your mom quite a bit in this interview. Um, She was a literal clown. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a side thing, but she did for two months. She studied clowning at the Cambridge School for Adult Education. 
and this was back went, in Massachusetts, went, right? This is back in Massachusetts, yeah. And uh, so I was, I think I was 12 at the time. It was right around the time we were moving into the city. And um, I think she was sort of casting about for some other sort of creative outlet. So she went to clown school and she created her own persona. She she created her own face with the grease paint and the, like the whole thing, like two months of really honing in on a character and an identity and a name and the costume her friend Nancy made her this polka dotted suit and she got the big floppy shoes and she had a bowler hat and this weird blonde curly like Harpo Marx wig and she became Stoney the Clown so like any excuse to get into clown character she would do it why and I was 12 I know yeah. it's like seventh seventh grade isn't hard enough right yeah. <laughs> uh, I think that she there was this sort of performer side of her that never got let out and it was exciting for her and I think especially my brothers who are are older than I am they're six and eight years older than I like they didn't have a lot of patience for mom's quirky outbursts and her little performances of like drama or poetry uh so this was a way for her to find her own little avenue of I don't know, just some weird thing that would be her very own expression. And then the irony is that when she got Alzheimer's, you know, she just fell even more naturally into this clownish role. Oh, wow. And she had sort of a built-in audience with me and the other caregivers that were, were caring for her. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have I have so many questions about um, that time in your life. Um, but I want is it okay to return? We'll return to that. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you first came to the guitar. You got a guitar when you were 12. Yeah, I had gone to summer camp. And there was this woman. Ooh, what kind Min of summer camp did you go to? It was a Christian science summer camp. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but one of the counselors was named Mindy Jostin. And she sang with John Mellencamp and she sang with the Hooters and she was a badass. And she just, you know, every afternoon she would like hang out and sing songs and we would all just be like, oh, Mandy Justin. <laughs> and she was also like super hot. So she had this like pistachio green bikini and she got really tan and I'm a redhead. So I'm never, ever going to be tan in my life. But I was just sort of obsessed with Mindy Justin and I wanted to be just like her so I just begged and begged and begged and finally got a guitar for Christmas after that summer camp so I want to know more about what Christian science summer camp is like <laughs> <laughs> well it's kind of like every other summer camp except that you are uh everyone's a Christian scientist so if you stub your toe if you have a headache if you whatever you you pray you don't there's no um there's no nurse <laughs> mm. I mean unless there's something catastrophic in which case I'm sure they have sort of directives as to like okay in the case of emergency should we treat the kid and then maybe they would take you to the hospital but uh luckily I didn't see any major major mishaps well that's good um yeah. Were you raised a Christian scientist? Yep. Yeah. And how do you feel about that now? I am not a Christian scientist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it's uh, a really, it's so complicated. I don't know if you've 
read the book um, Educated by Tara Westover. Mm -mm. It's a weird thing because you're, I mean, I don't want to call it a cult because that's a little harsh, but it's it's definitely when you're little, of course, you, you're whatever your parents are. You know, you're, you're indoctrinated, you know, in good or bad ways. And sometimes it takes a while to realize, well, this really is not for me. Uh, I need to get out of this. Um, but at the same time, as much as I'm pretty adamantly not a Christian Zionist and I, I, I'm very angry about its teachings, just in terms of saving your own life if you need to, I... Um, I still defend it, mm. you know, and, and that's, I think that's very typical for people. I think a lot of people would say that who've come out of very intense religious upbringings who then leave the church. There's still this really complicated relationship mm -hmm. to defending it and yet being super critical of it and not wanting any part of it anymore. Well, yeah, it's going to be tough if people that you love are still following the doctrine. And, and suffering. I think that I witnessed so much suffering as a child in my family in particular, my both my parents, and it it instilled such a sense of helplessness. And then as I found medicine myself and as I dealt with my own physical whatever happened, you know, through doctors, which who I love, mm -hmm. uh it brought up this rage of like, how, how could you, you know, my mom in particular for 20 years um, had this skin cancer that went unchecked because she was absolutely convinced that she would be healed um, through Christian science, through prayer. And, you know, being in growing up that way, I was like, okay, mom, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm with you. I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. And then after 20 years, it was like, oh my God, this is a disaster. This is an emergency. You know, there was nothing left of her face. And finally she sought medical treatment. And it's something that now that I know, having been to the dermatologist, you know, it would have been a five minute session and they would have just taken off a tiny mole and it would have been fine. Wow. So that, you know, I witnessed so much of that, that I, I really struggle with my anger about it and mm. especially caring for her through those medical emergencies, like being the one to step mm. up and say, okay, I got you, mom, come live with me. We'll deal with this. Wow. Um, <laughs> was, was that a little heavy for early no, in the was, morning? <laughs> it, was very, it was perfect. Um, well, that's yeah. why this show, my mom show, my one woman show is called My Mother Has Four Noses because it's literally, she had four prosthetic noses after they fixed her up. Like there was nothing left to work with. So they had to make her a prosthetic nose. And when they do that, they make you four. <laughs> Were they all the same noses? They're exactly the same. Was one um, a clown nose? Design. I know she, she was actually sort of, she had such a great sense of humor about it. And that was the most beautiful thing about my mom's spirit. Um, she would joke with the maxillofacial surgeon and with the, the reconstructive woman who was a goddess. Um, like, well, can you make me a red one too? <laughs> <laughs> but no, they made her four. They're all the same exact pattern, but they would, she pigmented each of them differently. It's like fine art. They, they you know, they draw in like 
pores and little, you know, little red veiny things. So they look natural. And then some are lighter and some are, you know, two of them are a little lighter and two of them are a little darker. (laughs) So when you were taking care of your mom and she got, she got Alzheimer's and dementia, um, I'm interested in how that affected her faith. That is a brilliant question. Um, it still makes me emotional after what, six, seven years. Mm. Um, it took it away. It, it just, it disappeared. Like you would think that something that ingrained because with Alzheimer's, you know, often it's the very early memories that are, that you retain till the last stages, you know, early, like the songs you learn as a kid, you can still recall them, um, smells and poetry and those sort of early, early things. Uh, for my mom, the very thing that just provided her such solace and was her sustenance for so many years just disappeared and nothing could comfort her not the hymns that she used to love to sing not reading her the bible not reading her the science and health which is the textbook of christian science um and it was it was devastating and most of her sort of christian science friends abandoned her too and that was that that was another source of deep deep um sadness for me because the second that you know she wasn't really able to pray or practice christian science um the people that had worked with her as as a christian scientist just disappeared they were like well you know she's not really able to pray anymore and she's taking medicine now so we can't really we're not on the same page wow it was brutal and it was brutal did she and, understand what that that was happening that that her the people of her faith had left? I think at that point it was luckily a pivot that she was far enough advanced with the dementia that it wasn't specific to her. It's just that she couldn't find this one person. And she would call her like 20 times a day until we had to unplug the phone mm. um, and um, and then start creating other stories around where this person was. And then luckily it was like a month-long period of great turmoil and anguish. Ugh. And then something else took its place, which was, you know, because there's a sort of OCD component to Alzheimer's sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we just kept trying to find other things for her to fixate on. And it was her poetry and the L.L. Bean catalog. And um, well, I can know, relate I- to that. <laughs> and ice cream. And so we, we just sort of would find other things that seemed to spark her, her interest and her playfulness and her, you know, her, her clown character, basically. Mm. And we, we just tried to sort of meet her there and enhance that. It's interesting that you say that when when somebody gets dementia, they remain like their first like visceral memories remain and like the the core of their personality remains. So what did you learn about your mom's personality as her dementia advanced? I think I'm particularly interested in about um, like her her silliness and her humor. 
Well, that was the beauty of it, because you'll hear some stories that aren't as positive. I mean, it's, look, it's devastating, it's complicated, and it's awful at the end. So I don't want to sugarcoat the disease. Uh, But some people, the person that surfaces is not so lovely, and they can be angry and violent in a person that has been, you know, kind and generous all their lives. So we were lucky in that mom's core person uh, her her core qualities were just awesome you know this childlikeness surfaced and silliness and generosity and love and she was always like more concerned about us than for herself she'd always be so worried that there was going to be enough ice cream for everyone else or oh sweetheart aren't you cold or I had this one pair of jeans that was you know it I paid a ton of money for them and they had holes all over them and they were like super distressed and like really cool. But my mom would just be like, oh, sweetheart, you know, can't we get you some jeans that don't have holes in them? Like, let's look in the L.L. Bean catalog. I'm sure we can find you some jeans there. (laughs) Just be like, oh, mom, that is the best. That's the sweetest thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just a, a quick aside. My grandfather had dementia he passed away when he was like 92. This was over wow. 10 over 10 years ago, but um he was very like emotionally distant my whole life. Uh-huh. But when he got dementia, he turned into like the most sweet, like the most kind, like sweetest, like kissing. You know, every time he saw us, he would like kiss us and and just be very friendly and happy to see us. It's very It's Isn't it strange? Yeah. Mom actually, yeah, that's another thing. She became much more physical, like physically comfortable. And she loved holding hands and she loved to be touched. And she loved it when you would put this beautiful, yummy smelling cocoa butter lotion. You know, the smells were important, like aromatherapy. Mm. Like don't, you know, don't diss it. It really like having great smells around was very comforting to her. And the sense of touch became much more... Um, sacred and in, and intimate in in just the loveliest way. Yeah, that sounds so nice. Um, yeah, it's good. That's good to hold on to that that type of goodness. Um, yeah, because yeah, it is hard, especially over a long period. I'm sure. I don't know how long your grandfather was sort of less than present, but uh, it's hard to remember the the the, the other person, you know, the normal person. After a while, I still have trouble conjuring you know, so-called normal mom, you know? Mm, Yeah, totally. So can we, let's, let's go back. So you formed this, the story with Jennifer Kimball at Amherst College. Um, You two met while auditioning for an acapella group. (laughs) Can you talk about the harmonies that you were drawn to at that time and what it was maybe like when you and Jennifer first sang together? It was yeah, it was. We were both. Uh, we got into this a cappella group because our blend was so. It was really deep, like how our voices blended. Uh, we were both sopranos, and I have a more sort of, if you can, and sort of picture it as like a dagger. <laughs> My voice is more pointed than hers, and she has this gorgeous, velvety, rounder tone. So the two of us together created this beautiful blend. Uh, so. We mostly kind of hit it off as pals because we had the same sense of humor and we, you know, we were kind of irreverent and 
a little bit cynical about this acapella group. And <laughs> um, we started, you know, we would always want to add these weird dissonant notes into the arrangements and we'd get shot down. And we would always find ourselves singing along in the car to like pop songs of the time. And we would always end up on the weirdest harmony note together. And we'd like, wait, that's my note. And, you know, so we had this great affinity for this dissonant thing that we were both drawn to. Um, so she was the perfect foil. And uh, so sophomore year, I started writing songs and we started performing them together. Our first, we first called ourselves Jonathan and Jennifer. And then it was after college that we're like, mm, this is a little bit twee. You know, we can't, maybe this is not going to be a, a lasting kind of name. So I came up with the story. So uh, when I was listening to the story last night, I just had this like, striking moment of how incredible the sounds and the themes that you and Jennifer were uh, making and covering were not like how like just incredible they were but also how they were not in vogue at the time but there of course was a desire for it you got signed to a major label Mm -hmm. and then there's also groups from the past I'm thinking like the Roaches and 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 I don't know if you're familiar with um, this younger group, Mountain Man. No. Um, that that kind of have this like gentle, dissonant, harmony-driven music that is is like similar to the story and similar to the Roaches that they were about like the pretty brave subjects by brave young people. So I don't know. Like I was trying to think of like how can I formulate that thought into a question, but maybe like how do you feel about? that type of sound you were creating at that time, in some ways you were like trailblazing for songwriters in the 1990s. Like, particularly I'm thinking like musicians like Tori Amos, she was doing some pretty crazy stuff in the 90s that you and yeah. Jennifer were, were doing like in 1989. Yeah, I, well, thank you. I take that as a, a really great compliment. And I, I have to say that you hit it on the head with the Roach sisters. I think they, you could probably hear almost as much of them in our early, you know, in the early, in the story records as, as anything, just because of that gleeful dissonant thing that, you know, the, the, the rubbing of those notes and the close harmonies. Um, we were a little more poppy, you know, and arranged and produced than they were. So they were a big inspiration. And I guess it was, what was awesome about the story and, and Jennifer and me was that we didn't really have a sense of, you don't think about that at the time. You don't think about like, ooh, we're breaking new ground. You know, we're <laughs> going we're gonna to kick, you know, pop music's ass on its head. <laughs> it's more like, oh, my God, someone just gave us a quarter of a million dollars to make a record. Let's go have some fucking fun. You know, let's, <laughs> let's just let's go rock this thing. And that was what was so exciting was to be in this playground of you can do whatever you want you've got like a month in a fancy pants studio you can call all your favorite musicians and see what happens and you can you have like as many vocal tracks as you want so you can do like 15 harmonies yay (laughs) (laughs) so it was it was just kind of like wow this is really cool these are the things that are are I'm thinking about right now and this is what I want to say and let's just see what happens and so I guess it just sort of felt like we were still finding our sound so we were just lucky I guess you know it's always luck and timing yeah um 
<clears throat> so not to like just like f- jump around all over the place, but after the story, you had like such a wild career, and I think like the '90s in general were such a weird time for music. And you rode through it. You did well in the early, <laughs> also, and into the early 2000s, where like everything, like compared to the 90s, it was like far more weird and bizarre, and everything kind of like blew up in the business. Um, how do you reflect on that crazy amounts of change in the industry that you've seen over the years? Um, like, did you ever want to quit? Was there something that was constantly driving you throughout that? Wow, these are such great questions, I have to say. Thank you. Uh, it It is amazing to look back over the 90s into the 2000s and the major label deals. You know, I had four major label records, and then I've made, I think, nine now on my own label. And the constant recalibrating, I think that's what the, the real sort of test of your metal is like number one do you have to do this no matter what answer yes this is what I do this is what what feeds me I love making records I love writing songs I love touring uh and then the reality of it is like can I afford to do this (laughs) because at a certain point you are on your own you know it happens to almost every artist it's you know the one-tenth of one percent that stays on top and is making great money for their careers it's like you really have to recalibrate almost for each record like okay how am I doing can I still do this without you know wanting to kill myself how will I pay for it and how do I define success what's enough for me yeah you definitely seem to be an artist who is very agile when it comes to the business model of this weird music industry that we found ourselves in. Um, I think on the flip side of that, I'm interested in knowing um, you were just talking about um, like your definition of success. So financial success or, you know, able to pay the bills, that's one thing. But what about the struggle with like being enough for yourself? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an ego thing really. And I think that I've there are times when I've struggled because I sort of feel like, oh my God, this is the one. Like Ten Cent Wings was the record for me that I thought was like, this is my masterpiece. Like this I'll kill myself if this thing if this thing doesn't reach a wider audience. And then of course the late there was a regime change at the label and you know, right when Secrets and Lies was starting to chart rise the charts at Triple A radio. Um, they dropped me. <laughs> so like between a Friday, I was on tour between a Friday and the next Monday, they like called all the radio stations and were like, mm, don't play this anymore. We're moving on to, I don't know, Jackson Brown or whoever. Uh, so it was like this brutal, like, wait a minute, we were actually, we were starting to have some success with this. And this record is awesome. And I'm done. So, so mundane. Yeah. And that's when you're like, oh, my God, like, that is just so dumb of them. Like, you know, I've got this track record. I have I've built this fan base. I sold a hundred and whatever thousand records on the last thing. Like, what are you thinking? Like, 
have you heard of artist development and like we were charting is this like a vindictive thing what the hell do you what you don't like me <laughs> so once you get over that it's like you know you grow up and you're like all right it's not necessarily about me it's not about the music even it's like okay what is what's enough I just have to make great music and I and I I'm so thrilled year after year that I find out all the people that know who I am and they sort of come out of the woodwork and I'm like oh my god that's really cool so I guess it's just you know the the respect of your peers doing great work not being an asshole so that you're not burning any bridges along the way I mean that's like my one <laughs> what kind of advice do you have for for people just starting out like don't be an asshole basically <laughs> because it's a very small world and you need every friend that you can find I feel like somebody needs to write a book about like between like 1996 and like 2004 the amount of artists that just sort of like fell through like industry bureaucracy like yourself Patty Griffin um and Poe and those those three names come to mind immediately and there must be like so many more that just were completely and utterly just screwed Ugh, totally there's I mean hundreds and then it's interesting I mean a lot of a lot of people sort of what I would call the middle class of artists I mean a lot of them are just like all right see ya I'm going back to school I gotta do something else mm -hmm. this is too like Katie Curtis I mean on a different level but Katie Curtis and um, other people are just like this is just too hard yeah you know it's just too hard and I've got a family now <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah yeah Um, okay, let's talk about our boyfriend, Woody Guthrie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so The Works is the album where you get to go into the Woody Guthrie archives and select songs that were never recorded before. First of all, like, what were the archives, like, physically like? Like, is I'm imagining, like, a bank vault. A little bit, yeah. It was like a, a three-room office suite in a building on 57th Street in New York. And one room was like the Tiffany's room, the the the, the overseer, the sec I don't want to call her secretary. She was like assistant to Nora Guthrie, the daughter. One was Nora's office. And then the third room was a bigger room with these those huge sliding like metal file cabinets, but floor to ceiling. So not a big place, but um, someone had come in and completely organized the whole thing. I think it was like in the attic in Nora's house in like Kisco or something. Yeah. And uh, someone came in and organized every single thing and, and photographed it and documented it and archived it. So it was just this one big room with a big table. And then you would put on these white cotton gloves and you were given a tiny silver spatula, like a tiny little poker thing, almost like a dentist tool, so that you would turn the pages with that rather than risk, you know, the dog airing yeah. them by mistake or the oil of your skin. So you'd like turn them with a little spatula and you'd have your little white cotton gloves and you'd like just, I would just, I went there for almost two weeks straight, almost like a straight job. And I just looked through and I, and then I would request, like, I want this one, this one, this one, this one. And they would 
send me uh, JPEGs of those pages that I had requested, and then I meddled with them until the record came out. Were you the first woman songwriter to look through the archives like this? I think I might have been the first woman, like, given that full-fledged access and, and you know, the trust of I had her complete confidence. And she was just like, go for it. Do what you, you know, do what you got to do. Because don't worry about Woody. He's going to be fine. Uh, this should be about you. This is your record. And it's going to be beautiful. And she was really drawn to this first song that I'd written, which is sort of like a little test run for a benefit concert. And Weeks really hit it off after that. She's like, okay, let's go. Um, I think maybe someone had come in. I don't know if it was Cheryl Wheeler or another sort of folk artist might have come in, another woman, to do like a one-off. But I think that I was the first that wanted to do a full. I mean, there was Wilco and Billy Bragg that did the those two records, but I was the first girl to do a full record. You brought out this very tender and loving side of Woody on that record that I think hadn't really been seen before and I wonder if that was um, intentional or if there was like if it impacted your your search to to know that you were maybe the first woman searching through these archives Hmm. maybe I'm shooting for blank shooting blanks here no not at all I mean I don't think it was conscious it was what I was drawn to and surprised by you know, because I, I found these like gorgeous love poems and these things that he written from a woman's perspective. Like I didn't even have to change the gender of wow. the poetry. So I, it was more like, oh, my God, this is here, too. It's not just, you know, political songs or, uh, you know, even kids songs. He, It was like, oh, my God, this, this guy has so many facets. I'm going to I'm so drawn to this one because no one knows about this side. Uh, so it was more like. Oh, what I responded to it was just I get this little Twitter in my tummy and I'm like, OK, that must be that must be for me. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, so you found some like pretty bizarre stuff in there as well um, that you've talked about in interviews past. But um, all encompassing, how did getting to know Woody Guthrie through this process change you? And in what ways did you most connect with him? Uh, it changed me because I think his example was he was so fearless. And I witnessed that in like seeing all of this. They, you know, they saved everything. So there was stuff on napkins. There was weird stuff he typed on wrapping paper. There was hotel stationery. There was things that he had painted in a sketchbook and then written over. It was his fearlessness that really changed me and and inspired me because it made me less precious about my own process because I get pretty damn precious and pretty damn paranoid. And so it was this really painless process and it felt like he was in the room with me collaborating. It felt like he was on my shoulder going, come on, man, let's let's do this thing. That was wicked inspiring. Um, I love your use of the word precious. I notice you use it like throughout your career, you've used it quite a bit in interviews just to talk about like how um, your process is as a songwriter. So I'm really happy that you brought it up in this interview too. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Precious is, is such, it has such a range of meaning for me. Um, one of the women that helped me take care of mom is from Jamaica and she used that word in the most beautiful way. Like she'd say, oh, 
my precious? You know, how are you doing today, my precious? And so it's like this twofold thing. Like now to me, it's a sacred word as well as the way I define myself when I'm sucking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Imposter is your new EP, which um, the cover of the EP is, that's real. Um, It's you playing a bass drum with no clothes in the middle of the street. Yeah, I just took a real leap. I had this idea and then I did it and I'm like, screw it. I'm going to I'm going for it. <laughs> it's great. Um you have a very pop-centric mentality, like a very bright personality to um I think n- not that I know you personally, but just viewing you over the years, your sense of style, the way you are in interviews, you are very um you're very bright. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> but it's ironic. There is this like depth and sophistication that you capture so elegantly in your music and in your personality. Do you see that duality, and how do you work with those two sides of yourself and your music? Oh my God, you're wicked! You're so fucking smart. <laughs> Thank you. This is the best. I swear to God, like no, these are incredible questions. Um. It's like I'm getting emotional. Um, I I guess it's like. Can you ask it again? That's such a <laughs> like the 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 fashion and like pop sensibility, but also having a depth of sentiment. I I guess okay. So maybe it's like the religion has probably influenced that, and my love for literature. And poetry. I am my mother's daughter. She was obsessed with poetry, and she was a poet. Uh, so, and I'm, and I'm deeply emotional. And I think that I write when I'm emotional. And I think that I try to get at deeply emotional things and complicated things. And sometimes I get it right, and I hit the emotional nail on the head, and and it becomes maybe a detailed, faceted expression but it's also universal um a song like because i told you so that's one where i i got it and even so much mine which is complicated it's a story song it's a complicated song and it's complicated harmonically and there's counterpoint but thus the the sentiment gets at this very deep complex relationship that is universal mothers and daughters and that struggle um on, on the other side i've I'm a pop songwriter. I love a great hook. I love a chorus that just gets in your head and is singable and happening. And uh, I guess because I was a dancer, I've always sort of been in my body and liked nice clothes and like feeling funky and looking good. And so I guess my image has been, you know, I'm, I'm conscious and I'm vain enough, I guess, that I want to look good too. Um, and that's a, that's a really interesting transition now that we could do a whole other interview about is, like, <laughs> you know, that watching yourself age and, and suddenly being like a very different, like invisible in a way, mm. in a way that you never were until suddenly you are invisible. Uh, and there's a power in it. And there's also a very 
interesting thing you have to make your peace with. It's, it's another recalibration. So there's the artistic recalibration. Then there's like the being a woman and being 55 recalibration mm. of like, who am I now? And am I good with this? And how am I going to be comfortable in my skin? Because this other sense of power that I had around my physicality is not kind of part of my arsenal anymore, necessarily. That sounds weird, but... No, it makes sense. But it's super freeing, too, because I'm not trying to be the cutest girl in the room. I don't give a shit, you know, because that's what Fire is about. You know, the song Fire on the new record is about, like, all right, I got this, because I don't need you to like my ass anymore. (laughs) I'm not really worried about that. I want you to listen. Yeah. Um, So in looking back on... um, you know came coming of age as an artist in the 90s has was it a struggle to negotiate with the perception of either of those sides so it seems like back in the 90s and maybe forever it seems like women could do no right you were either like the whore or you were the shrewd do you mm-hmm. feel that and what was your experience there i think earlier i was insecure enough to just want to be pretty it just takes up doesn't that take up so much of your time it's exhausting it's so exhausting and so dumb and at the same time that I was sort of probably publicly militantly like you know I don't give a shit of course I did (laughs) of course I did I wanted to be pretty in the pictures and I wanted to look cute in my little weird I mean, some of the pictures, some of the shit I wore back in the story, like Jennifer and I would just be mortified to to see some of <laughs> But um, it's just so hard. It's heady and it's complicated. And, you know, just being female is so complicated because it is so much about other people's gaze and how you are perceived. And you are the person that is 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 imposing that gaze on yourself. You know, we're we're taught that. We're we're grown that way to like always be conscious of how other people are seeing us. You know, I think that's a book I read in college, Ways of Seeing, the John Berger book, or is it Berger? Um, where he really gets specific about like it's a very female thing to be number one, seeing the world, but also always conscious of how the world is seeing you. And um yeah, it's wicked hard. <laughs> I don't think I answered the question, but no, but we but we definitely have cracked into another topic that we'll have to cover in part two. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I hope we can have a part two. Yeah, me too. Um, well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking. Likewise, the time. I so appreciate this conversation. Honestly, thank you so much. God, what a woman. I can honestly say after that conversation, like, I, I mean, I started this podcast saying that I really liked Jonathan Brooke and always really liked her music. But like, after speaking with her, I'm like, really into Jonathan Brooke. I love her. I think she's an incredible human being. Uh, so happy that she was able to come on the podcast. And again, her new EP, Imposter, um, you can check it out, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your music, you can even buy it. Once again, let's thank our sponsors for Basic Folk. Basic Folk is supported by Tina and Her Pony. If you like fresh takes on traditional music, you might like Tina and Her Pony. 
Follow them on Spotify or at Tina and Her Pony. On Basic Folk, you hear honest conversations about how artists are journeying from point A to B. If you could use support and motivation on your journey, Life Coach Janet Forrest is there for you. Visit JanetForrest.com and mention Basic Folk and you'll receive 25% off your first month of coaching. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday. You can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. Laura McCarthy produces Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy Howes. I host this podcast. Also, uh, you can go to my website, cindyhouse.net, sign up for the Basic Folk newsletter that you'll get once a week with just wonderful, whimsical quips about the, the guests on Basic Folk and, you know, whatever I feel like telling you about. There's also a new Facebook group with 300 members, which is awesome. I post pictures of my cat and ask you questions about your favorite music. I would be so honored if you could join us on Facebook for Basic Folk Basics. Um, and that's about the sum of it. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye.